I want to give a little preface to my presentation this morning that will help us understand where we stand in relationship to psychology. When I first began to write on the topic of human psychology, I submitted a manuscript to Pacific Press, and it ended up this book, 13 Weeks to Peace. The working title I had for this book was Jesus Psychology, what you see up here on the screen. Jesus Psychology. I loved that title because it said it all. It was the psychology of Jesus himself. It's how Jesus approached the issue of human psychology. And I felt that I had gone into the word, you know, Jesus is the word. I'd gone into the, the word itself, and I had mined out some of the principles of how the human psyche works and how people can get help through the power of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit and so forth. And I really loved that title. Pacific Press would not let me use the title. Why? They said the word psychology in the title will kill the sales of the book because there is so much prejudice against psychology and so much fear of the wrong elements of secular psychology in the church that if you put the word psychology in the title, it'll kill the sales of the book and the majority of the sales of the ABC are conservative Adventists and typically the older set and they know their market, and I do not fault Pacific Press for saying that. They were just saying what was. They weren't saying what should be. But that's sad, isn't it, that we're afraid of a word like that. I'm going to prove to you in a minute that it is not a swear word after all, that psychology is a good word. But I want to talk a little bit about how we ended up in this place where we're so afraid of psychology. There's a couple reasons. One is that historically there was a time in our history when some anti-intellectual fundamentalist elements came into the Adventist church. And with that package, and I'm simplifying something here, but with that package came a certain fear of really all secular sciences. Well, because Ellen White talks so much about the work of a physician, we've kind of gotten past that when it comes to medical science, for instance. But we have never really gotten past it when it comes to the social sciences, such as psychology. Another reason is that historically there was a point in Adventist history when the medical work went one direction and the ministry went another direction. I don't know if you've read the book De Sozo by David Fiedler. Have any of you read that book? It's really a fascinating book where he chronicles the history of the health message basically in Adventism and he takes it up to the time of Kellogg and he shows how when Kellogg came along and because of the whole debacle involving Kellogg, there was a parting of the ways, and the ministry went over here, and the health work went over here, and they really kind of separated. And she said in reference to that, we are to be one in the faith. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. What kind of evil? The worst evil. Break this down with me. Why is it the worst evil? because you're implying by the very way you operate that there is a separation between the body and the spirit and that the, and you're compartmentalizing them away from each other. And what do we teach as a church? What does the Bible teach about the unity of the human entity? We teach that we are holistic, that there is a blending of the body, the soul, and the spirit in the human entity. And when you start to separate those things, essentially what you're doing is you're preaching a false doctrine by the way that you function. Now, I think it's very, very fascinating that we've, in the process of this, left mental health out of the health message. Think about it for a moment. How many of you know over five Adventist physicians? Raise your hand if you know over five Adventist physicians. How many of you know over five Adventist counselors? or mental health professionals. You live in Loma Linda. No? Where do you live? Okay, well, you know a lot of Adventist mental health people, and that's really remarkable. But I make my point, do I not? There are many, many uh, institutions, many organizations, many ministries that deal with physical health, many physicians, many professionals in Adventism that deal with physical health, but we don't have nearly the same amount of effort, energy, and creativity put into dealing with the mind. And yet, which of the physical and the psychological is closer to the spiritual? In a sense, the mind is. 
And we should be working with people's minds just as, just as effectively as we are working with people's bodies through the health message. So what we've effectively done is we've left mental health out of the health message. And I'm very devoted to bringing it back. Why? Because I believe it will bridge the gap between the body and the spirit that has come about because of these the historic factors. Here's Adventist healthcare institutions, hospitals and sanitariums, 175, nursing homes and retirement centers, 136, clinics and dispensaries, 269, orphanages and children's homes, 34, uh, airplane and medical launches, 10, outpatient visits, over 17 million. Most of this dealing with physical health issues. I'm so thankful for the health message, aren't you? But we need just as much going on in the mental health field. And, and I've sort of diagrammed here how the psyche is a natural segue between the body and the spirit. So if we bring mental health back into the health message, we'll bring those separated parts back together. And so I'm very devoted to this for that reason, because I want to do my part to mend what is broken in Adventism in terms of our public face and in terms, in terms of our ministry presence. Just a statement for Mind, Character, and Personality. How many of you have read Mind, Character, and Personality? Fabulous books. You know, Ellen White blows my mind when we read about her advanced knowledge of medical science, for instance, the things that she knew through prophetic illumination that, that were later validated by science. But you know what? It's all the more true when you read the things she said about psychology. These things are be being validated by the day. As I read through my character and personality, my mind is just completely blown at the insight this woman had. Here's a statement that she makes. She said, in these days when skepticism and infidelity so often appear in a scientific garb, we need to be guarded on every hand. Through this means, our great adversary is deceiving thousands and leading them captive according to his will. Through what means? Skepticism and infidelity. And then, he's, then she says the advantage he takes of the what? The sciences, and in particular, sciences what? Which pertain to the human mind is what? Tremendous. Here, serpent-like, he imperceptibly creeps in to corrupt the work of God. So we do need to be afraid of bad psychology, amen? But the best defense is a good what? So the, the solution to this very threatening problem is not to retreat into an anti-psychology mode. Because I tell you what happens. Church members don't have good counseling, and they end up developing in their mental health issues, and pretty soon they're completely out of control, and we just put them in some institution, heavily medicate them, because we don't know how to deal with them. We need to have more on-the-ground, effective professionals that know how to deal with these situations. And so the best defense is a good what? A good offense, that's right. Now I'm going to prove to you, I said I'd prove that psychology is not a swear word. Here it is, right from the pen of Ellen White. She says the true principles of what? She said the word psychology in a non-derogatory sense. So the true principles of psychology are found where? In, in the Holy Scriptures. And as I said a minute ago, I have tried in this book, uh, 13 Weeks to Peace, to lay down those principles in an interactive, engaging kind of format. The book is meant to be an individual journey or a group study guide. At the end of each chapter, you find questions, discussion questions. There are also multiple worksheets. I love it when people take this book and they can get a, a bulk discount from me and they use it in, as a small group study guide and they do it in their churches. David Ashwick is doing it in his church over in Australia and he says it's just really having a profound effect. I prayed and I asked God to reveal to me the principles of human psychology from the scriptures, and that's what ended up being in this book. But about halfway through the book, I realized, wow, you know, human psychology isn't all about whether I'm healthy or not, because we're made in the image of a relational God, and so we really can't be individually healthy unless we have healthy what? Relationships, that's right. So I realized halfway through this book, I needed to write a sequel. So there are two books. This one just came out. This one is 13 Weeks to Peace on Individual Psychology, and this is 13 Weeks to Love on Relationship Mental Health. This is on Individual Mental Health. This is on Relationship Health. And I have copies of this up here you can look at, and then you can 
get a copy later if you like. I have handouts for you, and you can get copies from the ABC, I believe, that are here. I also have been working on some videos with Life and Health Network. The first set of videos, or the first DVD I put out, was called Seven Deadly Psychological Sins. And that is also distributed through the ABCs. And then I'm supposed to get copies of Seven Deadly Relationship Sins, which I'll be presenting in just a few moments here. Um, someone's supposed to be bringing them here in a few minutes. So I hope they show up. Anyway, the true principles of psychology are found in the Holy Scriptures. And I am so thankful for that. Let me uh, pray for us for a moment here. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, being here with us at ASI. And um, I know that people have come to this seminar because many of them are struggling with relationships, and, and they want answers. They don't want just to be entertained. They don't want to just be stimulated by someone getting up and speaking, but they want things they can take home and apply in their own lives, in their pra the practical realm of their everyday existence. And so, God, I want to pray that you would speak through me to them and that I would be able to impart to them something that will make a difference. Because I've seen how you can make a difference in my life. I know that you can make a difference in their lives. And so I pray that you would speak through me, move me out of the way, and, Lord, speak directly to their hearts in a practical and profound way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I talk about relationship sins, of course, I'm not talking about moral sins per se, but I'm talking about things we do in relationships that really sabotage our relationships and often in a kind of an unconscious way. We don't even realize what we're doing. And so what I'm going to be trying to do is mine these things out and identify them so that we can identify them. And then I want to, be pre I want to present to you replacement behaviors. It's very important to have replacement behaviors. I don't want to just dwell on the negative. I want to supplant the negative with something positive. Otherwise, it would be kind of like me telling you not to think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? A pink elephant. But if I say, don't think about a pink elephant, think about a green giraffe. What are you thinking about now? A green giraffe. Okay, so we're told that something better is what? The watchword of all education, the law of all true living. So God always replaces something bad with something better. And I'm going to be attempting to do that today as I present these seven deadly relationship sins and how to replace them. The first deadly relationship sin is escalation. And you know, I have my own testimony about escalation. What I mean by escalation is basically losing your temper. I remember struggling with temper. I was raised by my father, who had a bad temper and would explode and try to bring his family into line through anger and yelling and so forth. He wasn't physically abusive, but he was explosive. And so I had that developmentally. I also, I think, inherited his genetics. And so I had this very explosive temper. My poor family was subjected to my occasional explosions. Thank God it wasn't a constant thing. It was a kind of thing where I had a lot of patience, but that was a lot of patience to lose, you know. <laughs> and so I would sometimes fly off the handle. And I remember one incident where I wanted no TV in the home, and my husband wanted a TV because he wanted to watch football. And my kids wandered into the living room and started watching the TV, and they saw something I didn't want them to see. And then right in front of them, I started lacing into their father about the TV and how I really wanted the TV out of the home and so forth. And it turned into an argument. And my husband's a very quiet man. And he's more passive aggressive and I'm more just plain aggressive. So <laughs> that's kind of how things went. Of course, I felt very guilt ridden afterward and conscience stricken. I knew that that was much worse than anything my kids could see on TV, seeing their parents argue. So I went to make it right with one of my daughters, and the first thing she said, she looked at me and said, Daddy had a short temper. And I thought, why is she saying Daddy had a short temper when I was the one that was doing most of the yelling? And she looked at me and said, and you had a long temper. <laughs> so another story, a little girl came to her father and said, Daddy, what's the difference between anger 
and exasperation. What's the difference between anger and exasperation? He's working on an English project. And Daddy said, well, let me demonstrate to you the difference. And so he picked up the phone and called a random number in the phone book. And a man picked up on the other end. And the father said, is Melvin there? And the man said, there's no one here by that name. And the father said, very well then. And they both hung up. The father called back again just a moment later. And the same man picked up. And the father again said, is Melvin there? And the man said, sir, you just called. And I told you there is no Melvin here. Please stop calling my number. And he slammed down the phone. The father said, that, my daughter, was anger. Now let me demonstrate exasperation. He called the same number again. And the man picked up, picked up and he said, this is Melvin, have there been any calls for me? <laughs> so my point is that our emotions are very nuanced and anger is one of the most intense of them all. Would you agree with that? Back in the day of Sigmund Freud, he understood or conceptualized anger as being similar to the popular scientific theory of the day, which was hydraulic theory, which basically said that whenever there is tension in any part of a system, that tension must either be released, or pressure in any part of a system, I should say, that pressure must be released, or it moves to another what? Another part of the system. Freud said that human emotion was similar to this. And so what people really needed to do when pressure built up in the system was they needed to release that pressure. And so when people would start to feel angry, they needed to release that anger. Well, that was a partial truth. But in their dim understanding and unnuanced understanding of this, what therapists and counselors came up with was this idea of doing anger work, where people would just explode. And the explosion was supposed to serve the purpose of releasing that that pressure, and then the person would supposedly be okay. Some therapists even prescribed to families what they called a Vesuvius hour, where the family would get together in the evening and they would just explode. They'd have a period where they would yell and scream and throw things and shout at each other and get all kinds of angry, angry, and then it was thought that they would calm down after that and have a wonderful evening. Well, it didn't turn out that way <laughs> because it was found that expression what? expression deepens impression, and that when people got angry, it actually fueled the anger. And I've experienced this firsthand a number of times, as you know, by the story that I told just a moment ago. So what therapists then had to do was kind of go back to the drawing board and come up with a more nuanced understanding of how to manage anger. Now, I said a moment ago that, that anger work became very popular, where people would pound pillows and scream and shout and all this kind of thing. And it was found to be somewhat effective. But the reason it might have been effective is because people were actually getting a little bit of exercise while they were doing the anger work. <laughs> and so one of the basic, uh, most important elements in a good anger management program is to, to engage in a lot of vigorous exercise that can help metabolize some of those stress hormones and so forth. Um, but as you know, and maybe as you've experienced in life, Anger, anger can cause a lot of damage. So let's look at some of the medical facts. Hostility levels, and this is from a study out of Boston University, hostility levels are a better predictor of heart disease than high cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoking, and overweight. Talk about the need for us to have a more holistic understanding of human nature. We talk about diet, we talk about exercise, but we don't talk much about mental health. And so as a result, we're producing really angry vegetarians. You know, this isn't a good thing. We need to help people manage their hostility levels. Another study, and this is very interesting to me, showed that the type of anger matters. This is a study done out of Nova Scotia. And they found that constructive anger actually protected against coronary heart disease, whereas destructive anger was not as protective. And this, to me, brings to mind the verse in Ephesians that says what? Be angry, but sin not. So apparently there is a what? A sinful kind of anger, and there is also a righteous kind of anger. And so that constructive anger can be a very positive thing. And when I think of constructive anger, I think of defending the weak. I think of using the energy of outrage to 
put action steps in place to, to right some wrong in the world. That, to me, would be constructive anger. So let's make sure that we are angry but sin not. Possibly the most significant damage that comes from unconstructive anger is damage to the relationship itself. The story is told of a little boy with a, an explosive temper, and his father told him, every time you feel angry, I want you to go outside of the fence, take hammer and nails, and pound a nail into the fence. This was great advice. The first day, the boy pounded 37 nails into the fence. Day by day, he got a grip on his anger until finally he didn't have to pound any nails in. And he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I think I'm past my anger problem. Dad said, great, let's go look at the fence. And they went out and they looked at the fence and the father said, son, the fence will never be the same. Be honest with me, folks. Have you ever lost your temper and, and hurt a relationship? and had that relationship never be the same, I have. I have experienced that, where I've damaged a relationship, and it has never been the same since then. So be angry, but sin not, is the advice of Scripture. So often the way escalation works is it tends to feed off what we call reactive cycles in relationships. People, married people are great at this. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like the reactivity between you and another person took on a life of its own. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you almost aren't even aware of what you're doing anymore. You're, you're reacting so quickly that you don't even have time to think about it. Have you experienced that? I have. You guys aren't being very honest with me today. You're all sitting there looking like you have halos on, but I know you don't. I know, I know too well at this point. So husband does something. Tom does something to Mary. Mary issues a barb back to Tom. Tom throws a lightning bolt back at Mary. Mary jabs Tom. Tom explodes on Mary, and then Mary gives a swift, passive-aggressive undercut to Tom, and pretty soon they're in a reactive cycle, and it begins to look like chaos. What must happen in order to stop this cycle is one of the two people must go vertical. It takes two to tangle, but only one to love. Did you know that? It takes two to tangle, but only one to love. At any point, we can go vertical. And this is what I learned in my temper with my husband, is that I could go vertical in that moment, and I could give to God the problem that I was experiencing, whatever tension was building up between myself and my husband. I could surrender it to God in that moment. And God was able to work with me, and I realized that I was holding wrong beliefs. And the wrong belief that was leading to my wrong behavior was that I had to, it was my responsibility to control my husband when he was treating me badly. That was a flawed belief. When I got past that belief and realized that I could give him to God and that God could change him and I could simply walk away if the tension was mounting, I was able to control the anger. So at any point, a person can go vertical in one of these reactive cycles. That person can go vertical and the other may continue to issue the barbs and the thrusts and so forth but they'll just literally fall to the ground because there is no cycle. Amen. So I recommend with married couples that they establish in their calmer moments a habit of timeout where either one of them, and they both agree ahead of time, that either one of them at any time can call timeout. Now, timeout does not mean we're not going to talk about this because that will only lead to more anger and frustration when you shut down a conversation. But timeout means... We're going to take a break from this and come back to it. And I recommend if people are able to reschedule the revisiting of that issue at the time that they call the time out, if they're calm enough to do so. And if not, that they very quickly go back and schedule as soon as they are calm enough to do so. And this time out really works. It really, it really can be very effective if people are willing to follow through on it. So praise God that he's given us ways not to escalate. Amen? The replacement for escalation is time out. Next deadly relationship sin is invalidation. So unlike escalation, invalidation can be quite subtle. Often it comes in the form of trying to help, like don't worry, don't be angry, don't cry. I remember seeing a picture of myself. I actually have this picture of my family and my family did that a lot. They would like try to get me to act differently than I was, or to, to uh, put a smile on my face when I didn't feel like smiling at all. 
So there's a family picture, and everybody's just kind of sitting there. And I remember the day we went to have these pictures taken. I was highly frustrated and aggravated. And my mother said, smile. And I'm literally in the picture going, just like that. It doesn't work. It doesn't internalize when we just paste it on the outside. So oftentimes, we develop the habit, though, of invalidating people in subtle ways. There's some research conducted by a group of Christians at Denver uh, University, uh, University of Colorado in Denver, and they developed what's called the Christian Prevention and Relationship Enhancement Program, or CPREP. And they identified four negative patterns that, number one, were present in almost all failed relationships. Number two, were strong predictors of divorce. Number three, were often learned in the home of origin. And number four, tend to neutralize all the good that might be going on in the relationships. Um, so often these habits connect to one another. Let me give you what they are. Number one, escalation. Number two, invalidation. Number three, negative interpretation. And number four, withdrawal. And we're going to visit negative interpretation and withdrawal later. But often there are connections between them. For instance, sometimes when someone withdraws, it makes the other person want to escalate more. Or if someone invalidates, that causes frustration. And that can lead to escalation. So there are often connections between these things. So let me give you some more examples of, of invalidations. How about ordering, where we say things like smile, be happy, cheer up, lighten up, don't cry, don't worry, don't be sad. Or what about judging? You're a crybaby. You have issues. You're too sensitive. You're overreacting. You're too thin-skinned. You're too emotional. What about shooting? You should be excited. You should be thrilled. You should be happy. You should be thankful. What about philosophizing? Time heals all wounds, said in a very patronizing voice. Every cloud has a silver lining. You are just going through a phase. There's a reason for everything. What about justing? Just ignore them. Just tell them off. Just quit your job. Just get out of that relationship. Justing kind of implies that the person is so dumb that they didn't see the obvious answer. What about religionizing? This is one of my least favorites and probably the one that I do the most. Pray about it. I'll pray for you. God will help you. God never, never gives us more than we can bear. Now, let me make a point here. I was sharing this presentation in a certain forum, and a lady raised her hand and said, you've just taken away everything I could possibly say to a person. And I get that. It's true. None of these are bad statements in and of themselves. There's a place for all of them. But there's something missing when we invalidate, and that is usually what I call good listening or active listening. So the replacement for invalidation and the first step toward learning how not to invalidate is active listening. When we first hear a person and really take in and empathize with what they're saying, our, our statements that follow are going to have a lot more impact upon them. Do you know what I'm talking about? When we really take in the problem, take in what they're saying, then we're going to have influence on them, and we're going to be able to positively impact them in many cases. So let's talk about active listening for a moment. You know, very interestingly, James chapter 9 and verse 19, sorry, James chapter 1 and verse 19 says, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Do we have any two maybe youngish people that would be willing to um, do a little illustration with me. Great. Okay. One more? Or an oldish person? Oh, come on. Come on. Good. Just a simple little illustration I thought of. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So you're hearing, and you, my dear, are wrath. Okay? So, and I am um, speak. Okay? So it says, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. I want you to move very quickly, like run in place, okay. like you're moving really fast. Okay, okay. really fast. Okay. And you and I are going to be slow-mo because we're slow to hear and slow to wrath. Okay, so you got this. You got the illustration. Okay, what happens when he is quick, then we are slow, right? Do you get that? Because 
Speaking and wrath are intimately connected. One leads to the other. Now let's try to reverse it. And we're going to see what typically goes on in human experience. And you're going to do slow-mo. And we're going to run fast in place. So he's slow to hear. And as a result, we're quick to speak and quick to wrath. Do you see that? You're so slow, you're not even moving. <laughs> Thanks. That's good. Good. So you see the point that, that hearing um, first slows down the speaking process, and speaking and wrath are intimately connected. They really can't be separated from one another. And so if we're going to speak quickly, we're going to react quickly to situations. We're going to be very inclined to escalate in those situations. So it's the exact opposite of our inclination. What is our inclination when we're trying to prove a point or when we're in a conflict situation? Our inclination is to be quick to get our point across. So we put our point out, and the other person feels unheard, and they put their point out. We feel like they haven't heard us, and so we assert our point more forcefully, and they feel unheard, and so they assert their point more forcefully, and pretty soon we're in full-blown what? escalation. We're arguing at that point. Instead, we want to reverse that process. It takes a lot of humility to do this, a lot of humility. And I'm going to demonstrate it with you at the end of the presentation if we have time. And we'll do a little exercise that helps us reverse that natural tendency and learn how to actually listen. But let's talk a little bit more about active listening for a few moments so that we can get a grip on this wonderful thing and I'm going to tell you about the behavioral change stairway model. How many of you have heard of this? This was developed by the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit, which specializes in hostage situations. And this BCSM um, outlines the relationship building process involved in the negotiator and the subject, which culminates in what they call a peaceful settlement of the critical incident. So this method involves five steps. Number one, active listening. How about that? Built on the foundation of active listening, we have the development of what? If you're listening carefully to a person, they feel like you get them, like you're feeling them, like you understand them. And if they start feeling like you're empathizing with them, what do you develop with them? You then have rapport with them. And then out of that rapport, you have what? influence over them, and finally, you can ask for what? Behavior change. If you ask for the behavior change before you engaged in the act of listening, how effective would that be? Would not be effective at all. Now, this is used in situations where there's some guy with a gun that's going to mow down everybody in the hotel room and then kill himself, and he's threatening to do that, and the negotiator steps into that situation. And if this works in a situation like that, how much more would it work? Maybe you're thinking, well, my arguments with my spouse are even worse than that. But, but chances are they're not. And, and if we can learn this active listening and empathy and rapport building in our marriages, we can probably calm down, down those situations. What do you say? Let's talk a little bit more about active listening. I don't know how much time I have, but I'm just going to go quickly through these. There are various ways of active listening. And for many of us, these things come naturally. And I, I'm just going to be honest here. Women are more, I would say, inclined to know how to listen actively. Women are naturally, I think, a little better at it. But, but everybody can be trained. And even women can get better at it. So let's talk about a few of the traits of active listening. Um, maybe, maybe I don't really have time to demonstrate this. But let me give you just some examples. Mirroring would be when you kind of repeat back to people what they just said in a very quick way. For instance, someone says, you know, I'm having a really rough day. Oh, you're having a hard day. That would be mirroring, just a very brief feedback of what they just said. Now, let me just say something here, folks. If you leave this meeting and go tell people that the seminar presenter was teaching NLP and some kind of hocus-pocus spiritual formation thing, I'm going to get a gun, and I'm going to come after you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding about that. But I mean, please don't think that this is some kind of weirdness. This is just good, practical listening skills, OK? You got that? Are you with me? OK, another one is paraphrasing, putting in different words what that person just said. So they say, you know, um, 
I'm fe feeling really stressed out. You would say back, so you're anxious? Like that. That would be paraphrasing. It's very similar to mirroring. Um, emotional labeling would be giving a label to something that the person is not aware of. So the person is saying, oh, this is oh, just driving me crazy. You'd say, you're really frustrated. You're giving it an emotional label and helping them to define it. Summarizing would be taking a step back from the discussion. So you're having an ongoing discussion. And a lot of times with listening situations, and tell me if this has happened to you, you'll sit there passively and you'll be going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. How many of you find yourself in that situation? The person is rambling on. It can be very helpful to say, okay, let's just let me make sure I'm hearing you. You're not saying, I'm leaving. You're not saying, I don't care about you. You're saying, wait a minute, let me make sure I can care about you well. Okay? So it's very good to take a step back and say, okay, let me, sh let me make sure I got this right. Is this what you're saying? Um, you're, you're homeless, and your family members have all died, and you have a drug addiction, and you have no money. Is that what you're saying? You know, <laughs> That's a pretty bad situation. But, but you see what I'm doing there. Effective pauses. Effective pauses would be when you're speaking, and in order to connect better with the person, you put a pause in your own speech. So you might look at them and say, now, OK, I'm listening carefully to what you're saying. And as you're talking, I'm just feeling it inside my own gut, you know, this heart-wrenching story you're telling me. Wow. Those are some effective pauses right there. You're not getting into such a verbal rapid fire that you're overwhelming them. Because when people are hurting, they can't process cognitively very well. So effective pauses can really help to engage. Minimal encouragers are just the uh-huh and oh, wow, really? Women do this very well. Statistically, women are much better at encouraging sounds and expressions in a conversation. <gasps> really? Whoa. Uh-huh. Oh. Hmm. And then guys sometimes just stand there. <laughs> I have a friend, you know, he just stands there and looks at me. And I'll be, he's the kind of guy that sort of elicits you, like, pouring your heart out to him. For some reason, I just always do. So I'll be like pouring my heart. It's just me standing there looking. And he's a big green eyes, you know. How many of you know Lee G? Lee G? My, yeah, you know him. Big green eyes will just be staring at you. And I'll be thinking, oh, man, I'm totally oversharing. This is terrible. Why do I do this, you know? But then later he'll come back and he'll go, you know what you were saying about that the other day, you know? And he'll have listened totally and totally taken it in and totally cared. But he just didn't say anything while he was listening and caring. So it can be good to give some sign of life that we know we have a pulse, you know. <laughs> Another thing that really helps in active listening is open-ended questions. Open-ended questions are questions that cannot be answered with a yes or a no. And they are typically questions that begin with what, where, when, and how. Which of the words that begin a question did I leave out? Why? Why do we not use why questions? Because they come across as attacking or accusatory. Why didn't you just do this? Or why did he do that? Often that can be construed in that person's mind as an attack, even if you didn't mean it that way. So using what, where, when, and how can help offset that. But open-ended questions that give them an opportunity to really think about what they're saying can be very helpful in active listening. So those are just a few. Um, oh, here's one more. I statements. A lot of times it, it can be helpful to take a step back from the conversation and say how you feel about it. As you're telling me this, I feel really concerned. I feel more and more worried the more you're talking. I feel like I want to do something to try to help you. I want to find people that have resources that can meet your need or whatever you say. But saying it from an I standpoint can be very helpful. So the replacement for invalidation is what? Active listening. You guys are good listeners. You're actively listening. How about that? The next deadly uh, relationship sin is defensiveness. Defensiveness. Interesting, there's this bird called the giant petrel. It's an Antarctic water bird. And it has this unique defense mechanism. It can vomit out the contents way from its stomach and projectile vomit on whatever is attacking it with such force that it could knock a person down. 
Now, I don't have that opportunity or that, that ability. Sometimes I wish I did. But with the lack of that, sometimes we can be very defensive as human beings, can't we? Arguably, the doyen of marriage therapy is this man named John Gottman. How many of you have heard of John Gottman? He's an amazing man. You should check out his material. As you can see, he's a practicing Jew. He's wearing the yarmulke. Very wise man. And he cites four things that do the most damage in, in married relationships. John Gottman is so astute at studying marriage that he can guess with 85% accuracy whether a marriage will still be together in five years based on body language and facial expression alone. This man has taken reams of video, and he takes these videos and he studies the facial expression, the body language of the couple, and he ascertains whether they're going to be married or not in five years, and with 85% accuracy. So he's just a deep student of marriage, what makes it work, what makes it fail. And he has identified four things that disrupt relationships. And he, ironically enough, as a Jew, calls them the four horses of the apocalypse. <laughs> and they are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. I talked about criticism in the seven deadly psychological sins, and I talk about defensiveness, stonewalling or withdrawal is the same thing. I talk about defensiveness and withdrawal in this presentation. So oftentimes these two things will work off each other. Let me give you a very common presentation of these horsemen of the apocalypse, and that is the two of criticism and defensiveness and or withdrawal. Often women will try to get their husbands to function differently in a marriage. Women are wired relationally, and we're the sort of the gatekeepers of the relationships in the family. We're the ones that can very accurately diagnose what's wrong in relationships often, and we're the ones that are especially gifted by God to be able to provide solutions to that. But sometimes we don't go about our job in the most effective way, and we can come across to our partners like we're just being critical or what? Nagging. The nagging, the stereotype, nagging wife. So what happens is the man, in his attempt to avoid or evade this criticism, will become defensiveness or defensive or sometimes withdrawn. And the more defensive and withdrawn he becomes, the higher the wall he builds. What happens? The more the wife feels unheard, and she ups the ante and criticizes even more and even louder. And when she criticizes more and louder, what does he do? He builds a higher wall, and they feed off each other in that way. And this is what we find with many of these, uh, these deadly sins, so to speak. So the more she jabs, the more he puts up his shield, and they feed off one another. Here are some defensiveness statement headers, just to give you some ideas of how defensiveness sounds. Yes, but. What about when you? I don't think so. At least I'm not. That's ridiculous. I won't accept that. You are the one to talk. I don't agree. You're blowing this out of proportion. The replacement for defensiveness is openness. Can you all do that with your arms? Openness. Receptivity. The very perceived attacks that you think so devastating might actually carry helpful information. Now, I'm not talking about accepting abusive behavior. I'm talking about accepting maybe information that isn't delivered perfectly, but from someone who really loves us and has our best interest in mind. You know what I'm saying? Try to be open to what they have to give us. Often distorted beliefs get in the way of us being open to what other, pe other people say to us about relationships and about ourselves. So perhaps we think things like, I should always be perfect, or people should always have total satisfaction with their relationships, or if someone isn't happy with me, I have failed. These distorted beliefs, many of them formed when we're very young, form the cognitive foundation for a habit of defensiveness. 
So I sometimes encourage couples, for instance, to argue each other's case. It's a little exercise I put together where people will argue the other person's position. It takes a lot of courage to do so. Let me give you an example of how this works. Say there are two brothers, and the two brothers have a family get-together every year at Christmas. Tom wants to have the get-together at his house. Jim wants to have it at his house. What I would do is I would say, now argue each other's case. And Tom would say, Jim, we should have it at your house. You have more children, and travel would be more expensive for you. And Jim would say, Tom, we should have Christmas at your house because your folks live near, and the beach is near your house, and you have more space. It sounds easy enough, but let me tell you, it's so hard to argue the other's case because we are so wedded to our own agendas as human beings. And it seems like a threat of our very individuality, our very existence, when we start arguing the other person's case. But it can really help with this problem of defensiveness. The next deadly relationship sin is withdrawal. Have you ever heard of the website mancavesite.org? It's the cyber grand central for all things that have to do with man caves. How many of you have a man that likes to go in his cave? Did you know that statistically, women talk more at home and men talk more in public? That's statistics. Men come home, they want to be quiet. Women want to talk when they're at home. And I, I'm making generalities here, and they're not 100%, but, but, but it's generally true. My husband goes out in the yard, you know, and I always feel kind of self-conscious in the yard because we can see our neighbors and stuff. And I'll kind of feel like getting in my car and driving away and not saying it. And Ma Mike will be like, hey, man, you haven't mowed your lawn in a while, you know. And he'll joke with them. And, hey, did you see the game the other day? And he'll be yelling at the neighbors, and I'll just feel very self-conscious. But to me, that's a little bit of the difference between male and female nature. So this website, mancavesite.org, has links such as Cave Crusade, Entercavement, Special Events, Recipes, and Mom Cave versus Man Cave. And my point is this. Actually, they have a Man Cave of the Year award. And my point is this, that they celebrate the age-old tradition of men needing a little personal time. Everybody needs a little personal time. What we run into, though, is times when the personal time gets to the point of withdrawal. And usually the reason for withdrawal, a pattern of too much personal time, not enough connecting with others, is usually the result of unresolved conflict and inability to get through conflict, and so people withdraw in discouragement. Loneliness is a big problem. We're told that a merry heart does good like a what? But a broken spirit dries the bones. Loneliness can increase mortality by 50%. It's comparable to the risk of smoking in terms of its impact on the body. It's about twice as dangerous as obesity. It impairs immune function. It boosts inflammation, which can lead to diabetes and heart disease. Loneliness is a serious physical health issue. There's a man named John Cassiopo who says that loneliness is on the rise in our populace today. He says it has doubled since the 80s, when it was about 20%, to now it being at about 40% in the general population. Very interestingly, a UK study and many subsequent studies have duplicated the same data, essentially, is that loneliness is higher in the 18 to 34 age range. Now, what do you know about 18 to 34 age people? How are they in terms of social media? Very well what? Very well connected. Notice that they are disconnected in reality, but well-connected in social media. In fact, Facebook use predicts declines in well-being. I run into this so much in counseling, where people are comparing the inside of their life to the outside of someone else's life on Facebook. I've had women in my office weeping, crying, sobbing, because someone else had a big, bigger wedding ring, or someone else had a prettier house, or someone else was married with kids and had the white picket fence existence and she hadn't met the man of her dreams yet. She was comparing her inside with their outside. I just tell her, look, I'm in counseling. I could tell you that white picket fence, it doesn't exist. In fact, I feel like saying, that person is my client, you know? <laughs> and they're more messed up than you are, but I'm not allowed to do that because of HIPAA. But believe me, I'm tempted some, sometimes. So the replacement for withdrawal is repair. Retention of relationships, healthy relationships, requires repair. Let me ask you this very important question about your marriage, about your friendships, about your parent-child relationships, whatever they are. Do you have a good 
repair system in place. Your relationships will stand or fall on whether you have a good repair system in place. Jesus said, everybody's going to sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to hurt each other. It's going to happen. There's going to be damage. The thing that makes or breaks the success of a relationship is the repair system. John Gottman says the difference between the masters and the disasters is that they are able to repair. And you know, it's very interesting. We don't need a PhD to repair well. What we need to do is to make consistent deposits in the emotional bank of that other person. And that creates in them a disposition to want the repair attempts to be successful. So make consistent deposits in their emotional bank account and your repair attempts, however awkward they may be, will be successful. This is the beauty of the book, The Five Love Languages. How many of you have read that book? It's a fabulous book, and the genius of the book is not so much in that he identified these five love languages, which let's go over them. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. This man did research, and he identified these five love languages. That the ways in which people hear, I love you, and they are different depending on the person. The genius of the Five Love Languages book, however, is not these five languages, but the fact that this whole exercise gets people out of themselves into communicating love the way that other person hears love, instead of thinking, well, I want to bring you chocolates. And the wife says, well, I'm allergic to chocolate, and I don't want you to spend the money. You know what I'm saying? Talk in the other person's language. It pulls you out of yourself to think about what is meaningful to that other person. That's how you make deposits in that person's emotional bank account. Make many deposits, and when offenses come, which Jesus said they would come, your repair attempts will be successful. One of the most important relationship repair skills is the ability to say what? I'm sorry. Most relationship conflicts involve wrong on both sides. We need to learn how to go to that person, take responsibility for our part, and simply apologize. The next deadly relationship sin is denial. This is the Indy 500 racetrack. Do you know that there's a museum in the middle of the racetrack? And did you know that there have been over 40 drivers that have died in Indy 500 races? But there's no mention of those 40 deaths in the museum. Why? Because they're in major denial about it. Scott Goodyear says you don't go look where it happened. You don't watch the films of it on television. You don't deal with it. You pretend it never happened happened. That's what you call denial. How many of you have heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She's the woman that identified the five stages of grieving, and she identified them when, when a loved one dies, what, what happens to us psychologically when a loved one dies. Number one, she said people go into denial. Number two, anger. Number three, bargaining. Number four, depression. And then finally, acceptance. So here's the point, that when we're hit with a disturbing reality, our first impulse is to what? deny its existence. And to be fair, denial can be helpful at times. It can get us through a crisis situation. But oftentimes in human behavior and in human functioning, the thing that works in the short term actually backfires in the long term. So what may be helping you in a survival situation could be harming you in a non-survival situation. And face it, most of life is not about just survival. We have to actually build relationships in a stable context. And you know, really if you think about it, denial is a form of dishonesty. We're lying to ourselves, and that's dishonest, isn't it? Addiction is the great breeding ground of denial. Part of this relates to the brain. In order for us to process difficult emotional material, we have to have a strong connection between the thinking part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain. What addiction does, drug use, alcohol, other forms of addiction, is it deadens the frontal lobe of the cerebral cortex so that we cannot deal with overwhelming emotional material. And then what happens is that we don't deal with problems at all, and the problems begin to compound one upon another in the life of the addict until finally the problems are truly overwhelming, financial, relational, professional, whatever, and that individual is literally drowning in problems without the cognitive ability to deal with those problems. And in some cases, it leads to suicide or slow suicide through the addiction itself. Had an experience recently with a loved one who had fallen into addiction. 
got a group of people together, six friends, five or six family members, went to the individual's house with letters that we had written, asked the individual to speak with us, let us, let us talk to her. She was resistant at first. We prayed like I've never prayed in my life, and she finally came back, listened to us read our letters. She looked as hard as a stone, got about halfway through, got to her auntie. She loved her auntie. Her auntie started reading her letter. Tears began to well up in her eyes. We read all of our letters. We got to the end of the line. We said, will you go into treatment? We have a car waiting for you. We have a plane ticket waiting for you. We have a treatment center waiting for you. Will you go? More prayers, more desperate prayers. She finally decided to go. That was three and a half years ago. She's clean today, probably alive because we did an intervention. But that's what it takes with an addict, friends. You've got to hit them hard with the facts and overwhelm their sensibilities. Um, but when you do that, I'm a strong believer in interventions. I really believe that they can save lives. So the replacement for denial is, of course, faith. You know, friends, we don't realize what we have in the simple promises of Scripture. People are struggling out there, and they don't have answers. Uh, we could just say, you know, tell the truth. But truth can be overwhelming, can't it, without the context of the hope that we find in the scriptures. Um, one of the Charlie Brown comic strips uh, characters was Linus, and Linus said, I don't like to face problems head on. I think the best way to solve problems is to avoid them. In fact, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or complicated that can't be run away from. So Linus can be excused for his denial because he was a what? He was a child, but Paul said, when I became a man, I put away what? childish things. And then Paul went on to say, now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So why not bring the tools of faith and hope to bear upon our relationships so that we can learn how to love and be loved? Amen? We can come out of the now. We can actually face the realities of the emptiness and the brokenness in our relationships so that we can start to actually make steps towards something better. The next deadly relationship sin is misinterpretation. Man once said to his wife, you look beautiful in blue. It brings out the blue in your eyes. She said, you don't like me in red, do you? And he said, uh, uh, they, they say that gentlemen prefer blondes, but I love your red hair. And she said, you think about blondes a lot? And he said, I love your curves. And she said, you think I'm fat? And he said, you sing like a bird. And she said, you mean a crow? And no matter what the man said, she would continue to misinterpret him, to put a negative construction. And you know what the man eventually did? He stopped trying to compliment her because everything he said was twisted into something else. I've seen this happen. There is no way to more effectively shut down a relationship than to misinterpret the other person. This is another one of the marriage destroyers that the C-PREP study brought out. They call it negative interpretation. We could call it misinterpretation. There's no effect, more effective way to shut down a relationship you know, most people don't want to be agreed with. They just want to be understood. And so that's what we need to strive for in our interpretation. Every, every time we see a situation, we have an opportunity to interpret it in one of three ways. We can interpret it positively, negatively, or neutrally. Say you walk into a cafeteria, a group of people talking. You know them, they know you. They stop talking as soon as you walk in. How are you going to interpret that? You can interpret it positively. Oh, they wanted to include me on the conversation. You can interpret it negatively. They were talking about me. Or you can interpret it neutrally. Well, they were done with their conversation. It can go any one of those ways. We have choices in regard to how we interpret. Sometimes I do public speaking. I remember doing a particular sermon in a church, and a man was looking at me like this the whole time. And I got totally psyched out by the way he was looking at me. He came up to me afterward and said, Praise the Lord for that sermon, sister. I really appreciate that. His face was just frozen like that. I don't know why. But he wasn't thinking negatively at all. And if I had taken advantage of my right to interpret him the way I wanted to, I would have had a better time with that sermon. The replacement for misinterpreting is checking in. Be brave enough to ask the person what they really meant. Um, John Gottman found in his research that one of the most effective relationship builders is to, as he says, let your partner influence you. Misinterpreting is really a form of blocking off influence. 
clinging to your own internal thoughtscape without letting the other person influence you. So I'm going to challenge you to ask three people that you're close to, do I ever misinterpret? Do I ever misinterpret? And, and be open, check in, and be open to what they say in response. The final, I think this is the last deadly relationship sin, is stuffing. One night, a wife found her husband standing over their baby's crib. She silently watched him as he stood looking down at the sleeping infant. She saw on his face a mixture of emotions, disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enchantment, skepticism. She's touched by this unusual display and of deep emotions, and... She goes to her husband, puts her arm around his waist, and says, a penny for your thoughts. And he says, it's amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make a crib like that for only $45. (laughs) Aren't emotions fascinating things? (laughs) They're so subtle. We don't always read them correctly, though, do we? Here's another story for you. Man told his dentist wife that he was cheating on her. So wanting to avail himself, I don't know why he did this, but this is a true story. Apparently he wanted to get one last free dental service before he left his wife for good. Told her he was cheating on her, then he said, but will you work on my teeth? Crazy. She gave him a powerful anesthetic and pulled every one of his teeth out. (laughs) And then the man's lover left him because he was toothless. You tell me, friends, are human emotions powerful things? We need to learn how to deal with them. They are weightless, they are volumeless, but they start wars, they start arguments, they ruin marriages, they build marriages. Emotions are very uh, powerful. We need to wrestle with them. We spend a lot of time talking about emotional regulation, but I, I fear that sometimes we think that emotional regulation is just stuffing our emotions and ignoring them, and really nothing could be further from the truth. Are you with me? We need to learn how to, I think, express and admit our emotions. So I'm going to be sharing that with you in a moment here. Um, uh, this is called a feelings wheel. How many of you have seen something like this? Basically takes all of the emotions and puts them in colors and, and categories. I give the feelings wheel to my clients and I tell them, look, expand your emotional vocabulary. And learn this very, very important sentence, I feel, fill in the blank. For instance, let me give you some examples. Emotions are very nuanced. Anger, uh, you can be angry, but you can be irritated, enraged, hostile, annoyed, upset, hateful, bitter, resentful, indignant, infuriated, or cross. You can be happy, or you can be delighted, gleeful, thankful, festive, cheerful, merry, elated, or jubilant. So our emotions are very nuanced, and there are are many of them, and we need to learn how to describe them effectively. Let's talk about the cognitive basis for emotion. The regulation of emotion very intimately involves a little organ called the insula. Put your fingers behind your ears and poke your finger through your skull, and you should be able to touch your insula there. It's just a little organ there. No, I'm saying don't try this at home. The insula mediates something called interoceptive awareness. Say that with me, interoceptive awareness, which is essentially the awareness of both body processes and emotions. So people with poor interoceptive awareness will not know that they're cold, that they're hungry, that they're thirsty. They'll have poor ability to judge those things, and they typically have poor ability to know when they're getting angry or when they're getting frustrated, or when they're lonely. So one of the things we teach people with poor interoceptive awareness is this acronym HALT. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And if you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, learn to acknowledge those feelings and then deal with that problem before you take on another bigger issue. Deal with that smaller issue first. Interestingly enough, The insula also regulates balance. Everybody uh, stand up for a moment. Stand on one foot and just kind of put one foot out in back of you and, like, try to stay balanced. How you doing? That's your insula working really super hard while you're trying to stay balanced. Isn't that cool? So, So what we find is that people with 
eating disorders typically have very poor introceptive awareness. They don't know their body. They can't read their body signals. They can't read their emotional signals very well. And so what they often do with them is they teach them balancing arts like Tai Chi and some of these different things so that they can build up their insula. Isn't that interesting? So one of the most important things that we can do is learn how to properly express our emotions. And we're afraid of this because we know that expression deepens what? Expression deepens impression. But we don't need to be afraid of this if we're expressing our emotions in a healthy way. So the replacement for stuffing is expressing. Learn the sentence, I feel. One of the most important sentences you will ever learn is, I feel, fill in the blank. Now, let me break this down for you. Say I'm getting really aggravated. It's Friday afternoon. It's getting close to the Sabbath. I have a lot more to do. I'm rushing through, and I get an interruption of some kind, and I feel my blood pressure go up. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So what do I typically do with that frustration? I explode on someone else, right? Or I get irritable or angry with someone else, right? Am I expressing that emotion? I most certainly am. And expression deepens what? Impression. I'm going to get angry or more aggravated the more I express it. But that's a passive, irresponsible way of expressing that emotion. Let me talk about the responsible way of expressing that emotion. I notice that my aggravation is building up. And I say, you know what? I'm getting really aggravated. I'm, I'm aggravated. I'm aggravated. And I need to deal with my aggravation in a responsible way by first and foremost being honest with myself about it and then selectively being honest with other people. Now, you can't tell everybody how you're feeling. You know, don't go to the lady at the post office and be like, I just waited half an hour in the line, and I'm feeling very aggravated and overwhelmed. She will not care. <laughs> but admit it to yourself and selectively admit it to others. So that's what I'm going to give you for now is just, um, are we like at the end here? OK, I'm sorry about going over if I've done so. But I want to close just really quickly by saying that Jesus wants to teach us how to love and be loved. And, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I ask for your prayers. And I ask um, for you to think carefully about what I've heard. And do we pray at the end of these things or do you just dismiss? We do? OK. Um, so let's pray for that in closing. Father in heaven, I just thank you and praise you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you've given us in your word that ministers to the needs of our hearts and particularly the needs of our relationships. And I ask that you would continue to do that for Jesus' sake throughout this weekend and throughout the rest of our lives. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.